Amen. Thank you, Luke and choir and orchestra, for leading us in such a powerful time of worship. It is awesome to see the Spirit move our people into responding in different forms and acts of worship. And so, thank you. It is very evident that the Spirit seems to be moving. And we ask you, Lord, now to continue moving in our midst as we go into a time of study of your word. So, I've been riding motorcycles um, ever since about the age of five or so. And throughout my time riding motorcycles, I have learned the value of balance. Um, Recently, as I've gotten into uh, mountain biking with Kirk, I've learned the value of balance in a new and fresh way as we have traversed many uh, mountains and taken many tumbles, Um, most of those tumbles probably out of stupidity. I'm sure Kirk can attest to that. Um, But I've learned a lot about balance. My wife, Summer, she's also learned the value of balance throughout her time as a cheerleader. She was able to cheer at the University of South Alabama for several years. And through the flips and everything that she does as a cheerleader, balance is a very important aspect of that. Uh, Since we've been married, um, Summer and I have learned about balance in, in different aspects of life. How to balance family life and ministry life. How to balance frequent interruptions to our sleep by crying babies. That's been more so summer than me, thankfully. But how to balance our needs and wants and desires versus those of our children. Life, in many ways, is about maintaining a proper balance. And when we look at scripture, we see that balance or tension, maybe, is is an important part of, of rightly understanding the word of God as well. Take, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. We see that we worship one God in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a balance or a tension there needed to properly understand that. Or maybe the fact that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. There's a balance or tension there that's needed. Or maybe, maybe the balance between faith and works that we see throughout Scripture. I want to, this morning invite you guys to examine another balance or tension that we see in Scripture, one that I myself have have wrestled with in properly understanding, and I think it's healthy for us all to wrestle with as we continue to pursue living out the gospel in our lives, as we continue to pursue Jesus Christ himself. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 14, the author explains that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. By saying this, John is not saying that that Jesus was 50% full of grace and 50% full of truth. No, Jesus was 100% full of grace and 100% full of truth. You see, John, as as well as the rest of the New New Testament, is showing us that Jesus was a perfect example of a life full of grace, as well as a perfect demonstration of truth, a perfect demonstration of grace and a perfect demonstration of truth. And I think we see several examples of that throughout the Gospels and even throughout the Gospel of John itself. Um, but I want to direct our attention to one specific example that we see in John chapter 8. 
So if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, or at least someone around you has a copy of God's Word that you can look on with, I invite you to open up with me uh, to John chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it'll be up there on the screen for you. Uh, but I'd, I'd like you to have your own copy to get, examine it for yourself. And, and as the Spirit leads, maybe mark some notes, underline stuff, uh, whatever, as the Spirit leads and, and brings out different portions of the text to your mind. Um, I think that's important for us to really engage with God's Word. We're going to read together verses 2 through 9 and work through this story together as it serves as an example of Jesus living out grace and truth in his life. So look at John chapter 8 with me. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I want us to picture or to try to visualize this story that John is sharing here with us. He tells us that this took place Early in the morning, early in the morning. So, so imagine, early one morning in the city of Jerusalem, as the city and its inhabitants are still in the process of waking up. In my mind, I think of, of uh, the story of Beauty and the Beast when Belle is kind of walking through the town, and everybody's waking up, and shutters are flying open, and people are kind of stretching out the windows. That's probably not an accurate picture at all of what's going on here, but that's just what comes in my mind. Um, but yeah, just imagine... Early in the morning, city of Jerusalem, old time Jerusalem, everybody's still in the process of waking up and starting their day, and Jesus walks into the city from the Mount of Olives. If you look back at the previous verse in verse 1, the text explains that he came down from the Mount of Olives and entered the city. Um, Now, it is presumed that, that Jesus spent the night at the Mount of Olives and probably spent a lot of that time in prayer and communion with his father. Um, this will be a key point later on, but we'll, we'll leave that here for now. As Jesus enters the city, he immediately goes to the temple, where we are told that all the people came to him. So early in the morning, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives, enters into the city, even as the city itself is still kind of waking up and starting their day, goes to the temple, and immediately draws a lot of people, all the people that are there at the temple. Now, If you're anything like me, when it's early in the morning, especially when I haven't gotten a good night's sleep and had my cup of coffee yet, I don't really want to be around people. And I'm sure people don't want to be around me either. But thankfully, Jesus is not like me. And as the people gather around him in the temple, he sits down and begins to teach them. 
Now, Jesus probably did not have a chair like this one here to sit down and teach from. But he might have had a, a, a bench or a ledge kind of similar to this over here from which he, he sat and taught. And so Jesus sits down and the people gather around him, probably sitting themselves on the ground. Who knows? The text doesn't tell us. They could have been standing, could have been sitting. And Jesus is sitting here teaching them. And as he's teaching them, there's a disruption, a major disruption. Now imagine for a minute, if during our teaching time this morning, the doors were to burst open and several men were to drag a woman down these aisles, a disheveled woman, and place her in the midst here and demand that she be dealt with in the midst of our worship service this morning. That would be absurd, right? Well, that's exactly what happens here in this story. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, right in the midst here, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Hmm. On Wednesday nights, we have been working through the book of Hebrews together as a youth family. And I've been encouraging our students to engage with the Word of God. And one of the ways that we've been encouraging them to engage with God's Word is to ask questions. And not only just ask questions, write them down, ponder them, think about them, discuss them with their brothers and sisters in Christ as they seek out answers to those questions together. So as I read through John chapter 8, several questions come to my mind. First one is this. Where is the man that she's committing adultery with? I mean, without going into too much detail, you can't commit adultery alone. So there should be two offenders here. Why is the woman the only one being brought and sought justice upon? Second question, why are these religious leaders asking Jesus what to do if the law clearly states what should be done? I mean, they even say as much themselves. Look at verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So if the law clearly states what should be done, the Pharisees know what the law clearly states, and we know from history that the Pharisees were very major sticklers to do what the law said, to do it to the nth degree. So why are they bringing her to Jesus in the first place? I think the answer to these two questions or at least maybe some insight into these questions, can be found in the following verse. Look at verse 6 with me. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, this was all just an elaborate ruse to put Jesus in a tight spot, to wedge Jesus between a rock and a hard place, to make him lose credibility among his followers, and possibly do away with him for good. And Jesus knows this. You see, Jesus is able to see beyond our actions and look into the heart of why we are doing the things we are doing. And he sees right through these religious leaders and sees their motives for why they are doing what they are doing. Another question that comes to my mind, and to me, possibly the most intriguing one, comes in Jesus' response. Picking up the story at the end of verse 6, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So two different times, Jesus bends down and writes on the ground. Now remember, the first time, Jesus is still sitting. This disruption happens in the midst of his teaching, while he's sitting, teaching these folks. And this disruption comes in, they place her in the midst, and they make these accusations against this woman, and demand that she be brought to justice. And as they're continuing to make these accusations, Jesus responds by bending down and riding in the ground. And then he stands up, and he verbally responds to the religious leaders. It's a short response. But then afterward, he bends down again and writes in the ground. So what exactly is Jesus writing here? The fact that John tells us he did this two separate times leads me to believe that it had to be something significant. Unfortunately, there is no record in Scripture of what exactly Jesus is writing on the ground. But several different scholars have speculated on this, with some saying that he's simply doodling on the ground. In essence, he's basically saying that, hey guys, this is not that big of a deal. Um, I'm, it's even shameful that you guys have, have brought this to my attention and disrupted my time of teaching uh, by highlighting this. Possible explanation. I think unlikely, but it's possible. That's what was going on here. Others, others speculate that, that Jesus is, is writing out the law, therefore demonstrating that Jesus was fully aware of what the law said. You see, the, the religious leaders were kind of uh, putting the law against Jesus, saying, hey, this is what the law says, now what do you say? Is, is what you say going to line up with the law or not? And so therefore, Jesus is kind of writing the law on the ground, showing that, hey, I know the law better than anybody else. So possibly, again, one, uh, one author surmised that, that maybe Jesus was writing down their individual names in the dirt in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophet. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, he says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord the spring of living water. Interesting verse. Possibly applies to this situation. My favorite interpretation, though, is that Jesus may be writing out their specific sins. The specific sins of the religious leaders gathered here. Or maybe, maybe a combination of what Jeremiah says, where Jesus is writing out their names in the dirt and then listing their own specific sins. Gosh, imagine how embarrassing that would be for Jesus to write out your name in the ground, and then whatever sin it is that you specifically are, are dealing with or struggling with at that moment. I can just imagine Jesus writing out Caleb, and then listing whatever sin it was that I was dealing with or struggling with in that moment. Gosh. I don't know. I don't know what Jesus wrote, and I don't think we'll ever know. 
But I sure do want to ask Jesus when I get to heaven one day because that to me is a super intriguing question that, that John decides to record for us two different times. So how do they respond? How do the religious leaders respond? Verse 9 tells us, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Not a single person there was able to say they were sinless and therefore began casting stones at the woman. Every single person left. Every single person, that is, except one. Jesus still stands there, being the only one who meets the qualification of casting the first stone at the woman. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So how is this an example of Jesus being full of grace and truth, like we saw at the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 14. Let's first of all get a better understanding of these two concepts. We got grace and truth. Grace, we just sang about, a very common word in church, very common word in scripture. One way of describing grace is that grace is getting something we don't deserve. Getting something we don't deserve. That's one way of describing grace. Well, what about truth? The best way I know how to describe truth is to look at the way the author himself, John, uses the word. And I want to, to point us to two different examples within the Gospel of John. The first one is in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, just a few verses later. John tells us here um, that Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A few chapters later, Jesus again says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, I think these two concepts, grace and truth, are linked together. Truth comes from Jesus and from abiding in his word. And and therefore, it it has the power to set us free. If we abide in Christ and abide in his word, it has the power to set us free. Whereas grace is getting something we don't deserve. Jesus is a gift that none of us deserve. And by abiding in him and in his word, we have the ability to be set free. Set free from what, you might ask? Set free from the bondage of sin and the eternal judgment associated with that sin. And that's exactly what we see with this woman caught in adultery. I mentioned that that grace and truth are linked together. So what is it that links grace and truth together? It's love. Love is what links grace and truth together. As I think of the example of grace and truth that we see from Jesus in this story in John chapter 8, it brings in my mind what Paul says in Ephesians 4.15. He says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ. And we see here, Jesus once again provides an excellent example of what it means to speak the truth in love. Notice that Jesus never disagreed with the ruling of the Pharisees here. Again, Jesus fully knew the law of Moses and knew that this woman deserved the punishment they were promoting. In no way is Jesus making a claim here that the woman, that what the woman has done is okay and should be overlooked. Jesus fully agrees with the psalmist when he says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So Jesus sees the sin of adultery and speaks the truth in his response to the woman when he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. Go, repent, turn from your sinful lifestyle and go in a different direction. Leave your life of sin and go back to it no longer. He is not diminishing the sin of the woman here, but he speaks the truth in a love that knows no end, a love that is able to say, even though your sin is apparent, even though that sin rightly deserves death by stoning, even though I, as God in the flesh, without sin, have the complete authority to pick up this stone and begin stoning you, Jesus chooses to say, Instead, neither do I condemn you. What a powerful demonstration of grace and truth being on full display. One that I think we should all strive to follow. And why should we follow after this example? Well, if you back up to where we began in John chapter 1, verse 14, you see a couple verses later, that John says in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, all of us were at one time in the shoes of the woman caught in adultery. Every single one of us were at one time completely filthy in our sin and fully deserving of God in his justice to pick up the stone and begin throwing it at us. The reason is because our sin, the penalty for our sin is death, just like that of the woman but grace, again, a gift we don't deserve. Grace was extended to us because the truth of our sin was exposed to us. And the truth of Jesus' offer of salvation was available before us. Let me say that again. Grace, again, a gift we don't deserve. Grace was extended to us because the truth of our sin was exposed to us. The truth of our filthiness the truth of our deserving of death was exposed to us. And the truth of Jesus' offer of salvation was available before us. So when we look back at the example being shown to us in John chapter 8, we should see a picture of ourselves being betrayed in that of the woman. And the call to the woman 
is the exact same call to us. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The next verse, verse 12 of John chapter 8. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This woman's sin had been committed in the darkness of the night and had been exposed. We likewise have been called out of the darkness of sin that equally deserves death. But we, like the woman, have been called to go and from now on sin no more. And to not walk in darkness any longer, but to have the light of life that is only offered through the gift of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, I simply want to invite you to wrestle with finding a proper balance between this tension of living out grace and truth within our lives. Living out the grace that Jesus demonstrates for us without compromising the truth that Jesus and his word so clearly proclaims. Finding a proper balance on this is way, way more important than finding proper balance on a motorcycle or a bicycle. I don't quite have it all figured out yet, but I've recently been, figuring, been challenged to reflect on some questions in regards to this. Questions that I want to share with you that I think will be helpful in our pursuit of grace and truth together. I want to address our seniors first. To our seniors... You are about to enter into a new phase of life, a phase that will be critical to the direction your life heads toward. So my question is this, how will you walk and talk, live and love like Jesus, wherever this next journey in life takes you? I don't know where you will end up a few years from now, but I do know that if you want your life to be marked by grace and truth, it begins by abiding in Jesus. John 8, 31 says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Are you truly his disciples? The answer to that question will be revealed by whether you continue to abide in Jesus and in his word or not. Jesus tells us in, in John 15, 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So will you choose to abide in Jesus and abide in his word? Or will you be drawn to a false grace and a false truth that the world promotes and offers? To our church body at large, to our faith family that, that gathers here at Wall Highway Baptist Church, these are some questions that I've been pondering and I think are helpful for us to ponder. How would you respond if a local prostitute were to come to our next social gathering and interact with you? Interact with your children? What would your response be? How would you respond if a gay couple were to come in here next Sunday and decide to sit right next to you, holding hands, displaying signs of affection throughout the service. 
What would your response be? How do we display love and grace in these situations without compromising the truth of God's word? I'm not here to offer answers as to how exactly we should respond in each of these situations. This is something that I myself am still wrestling with and trying to find a proper balance on. And the particulars of each of these situations is going to look different. But I do know, as followers of Jesus Christ, every single one of our responses should be governed by grace and truth that is led and empowered by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. And as we're looking to Jesus as our example, we see that he actively went to the sinners and engaged with them and ate with them and fellowshiped with them. He commanded us to go to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in and fill his house. When is the last time you went to the highways and hedges and compelled those to come in and fill this house? As we prepare to enter a newly renovated building, I think it's wise for us to ask some questions about the purpose of this building and what it will be used for. Will this newly renovated building be used to walk and talk, to live and love like Jesus? Maybe more pointedly, will we use this building, will this, will this building more closely resemble a social club or the church of Jesus Christ? Which one is it more closely going to look like at the end of the day? I, as well as many sitting in this room, am very, very excited about having a, a new, nice, fresh facility in order to do ministry in. And that's a good thing. I'm glad we're excited about that. But I have to ask myself, am I just as excited to use this newly renovated building to serve the homeless, the drug addicts, the prostitutes, to bring in those who don't look or live like me, but need Jesus just as badly as I do? Is that going to be the aim of what this building and what this church is going to be marked by? As we transition to a time of response, I think these are questions that we should all reflect on and continually ask the Spirit to guide us to a proper balance of how we're going to live out grace and truth in our individual lives and in this church that Jesus has modeled for us, not only in John chapter 8, but all throughout the Gospels. I'm going to ask Pastor Allen to come and lead us into our time of response together, as this is a special week of response for our church family. Pastor Allen.